And I'd like to invite the rest of you to open your Bibles to the book of Joshua. Okay, this is the sixth book in the Bible. If you're using one of the Bibles we provided for you, it'll be page 178. 178 of the Bibles that we provided for you. Did you guys hear that? Kids pushing the alarm button in the elevator. They like to do that sometimes. Kind of cool for a kid, right? Um, so yeah, we'll be in Joshua chapter 1, starting, starting in verse 1 this morning. And uh, let's pray again and ask God to really open our eyes and open our hearts to uh, hear from Him in His Word this morning. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we uh, are grateful for this opportunity to worship you. And Lord, we even pray for these precious kids as they uh, go back to, um, to um, just have a time of, of teaching and learning and activities. Uh, Lord, we're thankful for each of them, each of, each of um, the, the different age groups and the, and the bus station and the subway station. And uh, God, we pray that you would um, just bless the teachers there and help these kids to learn truths about you. And God, we also pray that you would open our eyes. Sometimes we need to be more like children. We need to be more humble, more receptive to what you want to teach us. And so, God, we pray that you would give us soft hearts, that you would give us uh, pliable hearts this morning that uh, want to hear from you and that, uh, that, that you uh, would, would just work in us your truth that we might be more like Christ and bring glory to your name. So, God, we, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you this morning, have you ever stood on the edge of impossible? Have you ever been handed a task or maybe dreamed a dream, maybe had a dream in your heart that, that seemed next to impossible to accomplish? I'm sure we've all had that uh, in our lives, whether that's something that's, that's great and we're wanting to chase after or if it's some kind of obstacle or trial that seems to stand in our way. I think we've all stood on the edge of impossible. And if you look in the Old Testament, in the book of Joshua, what we are going to find is that the Israelites, the people of God, were, were standing on the edge of impossible again. And what I want to do is just kind of give you a quick sweeping view of the Pentateuch, that's the first five books of the Bible, and kind of catch you up in the story of where we are in, in book six, all right, in Joshua. So what you have is the God who made the world and everything in it, and everything that God made was good, including man and woman, made in his image, made to reflect the greatness of God and the glory of God. So we, like God, are relational. We have moral capacity. Like God, we, we are spiritual uh, beings, just like God, made in his image. And we know that, that even though God made us in his image to live for him and glorify him, we rebelled against God. Adam and Eve did not obey God's commands. And so there were s serious consequences for their sin and they were uh, banished out of the Garden of Eden and, and death came to, to people, the human race. Now, from that time, God then in Genesis 12 makes a covenant with a man named Abraham. And then Abraham's son, Isaac, and Isaac, Isaac's son, Jacob, who was also called Israel. And from 
Jacob or Israel, we have 12 sons, and these 12 sons were to also walk in the covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But as we see again and again, the, the, the people, even Abraham didn't keep the covenant perfectly. Isaac didn't keep the covenant perfectly. Jacob didn't keep the covenant perfectly, nor did Jacob's 12 sons. And so what we see then is that there was one son named Joseph and he was mistreated by his older brothers and actually sold into Egyptian slavery. But what we find as we read through the final chapters of Genesis, chapters 37 through 50, capture this larger story of Joseph being sold into slavery in Egypt, but then uh, God working that evil, what his brothers meant for evil, actually for good. And how did he do this? Well, there was a famine in the land. People in Egypt and all around Egypt were without food. And so Joseph, knowing a famine was coming, says to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, we need to store up provisions and, and prepare for this famine. And so God had raised up Joseph in the house of Pharaoh to being second in command over Egypt. And all of the peoples around Egypt began to come to Egypt for food. This included Joseph's family, his brothers who sold them into slavery. And so there's emotional account narrative at the end of Genesis. And, and what he says to his brothers is that what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So now, picture this, you have the people of Israel dwelling in Egypt. It says at the beginning of the book of Exodus that they multiplied, they grew in numbers. They were becoming a great nation. So much so that uh, the new Pharaoh began to be intimidated by them. And he said, you know what? So that they don't revolt against us and become our enemies, we just need to go ahead and oppress them and force them into slavery. And that's exactly what happened. And so the people of Israel cry out to God, God, would you deliver us from the hand of oppression that we are experiencing in Egypt? And God hears their prayer and he raises up this man. Perhaps you've heard of him. His name was Moses. And Moses was the great leader of God's people. He was the one who would lead them out of Egypt on an exodus into the promised land. And so from Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation, we have this theme, okay? This is explained very well in a book called God's Big Picture. We usually have it on a resource table. Uh, a way to understand the Bible is you have God and God's people in God's place under God's rule experiencing God's blessing. You got that? Let me say that again, okay? You have God and his people dwelling in God's land, his place, hopefully living under God's rule and when they do that, they experience his blessing. So, so God was fulfilling his promise to his people to take them into his place, the promised land, Canaan. If you've read the Old Testament, it's described as a land flowing with milk and honey. Okay, that may not sound too good to you, but it sounded really good to them. Okay, it just was an expression meaning that it was an abundant land filled with great provisions and prosperity awaited the people of Israel. But as they were going on their journey, sadly, even tragically, we find that the people did not keep God's commands. They did not live under his rule. And so they rebelled against God. They grumbled, God, why have you led us out into the wilderness to die? They, they cried out. 
And it says that instead of worshiping gods, they made idols and worshiped those idols at times. And, and then they, they even uh, didn't place faith in God and his provision, but they allowed distrust, unbelief to rise up in their hearts. And probably the, the, the episode that is most pertinent to our story today is found in Numbers chapter 13, where God tells Moses, hey, of all the 12 tribes of Israel, tell each of them to pick one leader who will go into the land of Canaan and spy out the land so you can see exactly what this land looks like. And here's the key phrase, that I am giving you. God had promised to them that he was going to give them the land. But it says that 10 of the 12 spies come back and they report to the people, yes, it is a place that is abundant in, in provision and fruitfulness, but the people there are so big, so strong. The cities are vast. They are fortified. And in light of all of the, the warrior people who dwell in the land of Canaan, they said that we seem like grasshoppers in our eyes and even in their eyes also. So in other words, these 10 of the 12 spies, they lack faith to go into the promised land and they refuse out of fear to obey God and to go in and take the land. But you have two men, one named Joshua and one named Caleb, who said, no, 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 no. It may seem like we can't go in and take the land, but if God has promised it to us, then we need to obey God and experience his promises. Well, here's what happened. Because the people rallied together to side with the 10 spies, God did not allow them to enter into the promised land. And instead, for, for each of the days that the spies went in to spy out the land, was 40 days, he said, you will wander in the desert wilderness for 40 years. A year corresponding to each of the days that the spies went in. You can read all of this in Numbers 13 and forward. And so now, after this generation has died off in the wilderness, you have the two leaders who were faithful to keep God's promises. Joshua and Caleb on the precipice of the Jordan River again, and they are commanded to go in and take the land. And what we find that even Moses, the great leader of the people, because of his own disobedience, he didn't even get to go in and lead the people into the land, but it was Joshua who led God's people into God's land. Now that is where we pick up in Joshua chapter 1. Okay, so that's a flyover of the first five books of the Bible in about five minutes. All right, so there you go. Now Joshua chapter 1, it says in verse 1, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses my servant is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory." 
No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. So Joshua, be strong and courageous. Verse 6, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Now verse 8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So what we have here in Joshua 1 is God commanding Joshua to go in with his people and take the land. But as he does that, he promises his covenant presence with them, right? He says, Joshua, just as I was with Moses to bring him out of Egypt, so I will be with you. And we see here two recurring commands that are given to Joshua as he's about to go in and take the land. Now, the first one we would expect, right? It's repeated three times. Verse 6, 7, and 9. He says, be strong and courageous. So if you were going to lead a people in battle, being the commander of the army, you would probably need some unflinching courage in your heart to stand up against all of these foreign armies. So Joshua, you need to be strong and very courageous to lead these people into the promised land. But that's not all. There's another command. And if you're like me, you're probably thinking, he's saying, you know, Joshua, be very strong, be very courageous. And then number two, train your army in war for like three to five to 30 years, making sure they're really ready to go to battle in the greatest shape of their lives with the greatest military strategies so that then they can go in and take the land. But that's not what God says, is it? What does he say? He says, be strong and courageous. And then number two, be careful to do everything that I've commanded you in my word. And so what I want us to do this morning as we set out, this is the second week of our sermon series on rhythms, cultivating spiritual disciplines of grace. Last week we looked at what it means to work out our salvation as God is working in us. This week we're going to focus specifically on cultivating the rhythm of the word, okay? This, this gracious discipline to jump into God's word day by day by day. And, and just drink from the rivers of grace that God wants to give us. So let me ask you, is meditation on the Bible, the scriptures, is that a regular part of your life? Do you love the Bible? Do you, do you want to hear from it day by day? Listen, there was a, a great quote that says this, but where is the meditating Christian? Most people live in a hurry. They are so distracted with the cares of the world that they can find no time to meditate. Now, can anyone identify with this? Just raise your hand, kind of busy, kind of crazy busy, you know, have a lot going on in life. 
Guess when this quote was written? 1669 by a man named Thomas Watson. Now, if Thomas Watson could write that in 1669, how much more could we say that in 2013, not just living simply in 2013, but living in a global city like Boston where it seems like it is just a rat race constantly? Where is the meditating Christian? And yet this is what God commands Joshua to do. He says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night. So here's what I want you to, to see this morning, okay? Meditation is a commanded lifestyle that will produce much fruit to the glory of God. Okay, that's the point for this morning. Meditation is a commanded lifestyle that will bear much fruit, produce much fruit to the glory of God. Now, I want to give you six observations just from verse 8, all right, of chapter 1. We're just going to pick apart one verse this morning. And what I want to do is as we pick it apart, I want to be as practical and give you as many suggestions on how you can become, if you want to call yourself a meditating Christian, or if you want to just say, cultivate some rhythms of grace with the rhythm of the word in your life. Okay, so number one, the first, the first encouragement, we need to understand the content of meditation. Okay, understand the content of meditation. We see this in the first phrase of verse eight. It says, this book of the law. All right, this book of the law. The law was given by God to Moses and he wrote it down for the people to keep, okay? So we have, when, when we see in the Old Testament it referring to the law of God, sometimes it's referring specifically to the Mosaic law given in the Mosaic covenant in Exodus 20. And then again, the second giving of the law is given in Deuteronomy. But sometimes it's referring to the first five books of the Bible. And then sometimes, as we saw with David in Psalm 19, what we read this morning, it's used just to talk about all of the scriptures. So the law was, was everything that God had handed down to the people of Israel. Now, with this understanding, the book of the law given by God, we have some really foundational understandings of the doctrine of Scripture or our understanding of the Bible, okay? So, so what do we learn here? Number one, we believe that this book is God's book. God wrote a book, okay? Now, he did it through human agency. 2 Timothy 3 says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And 2 Peter 3 says that men were carried along by the Holy Spirit as they penned these words. So if God is, and we believe he is, and he's the creator of everything in the world uh, that we see, then it's not a stretch that God could inspire men to communicate his word in the pages of Scripture. So we believe that the word is inspired just like it says it is. We believe it's perfect just like we read about in Psalm 19. And we believe that it is without error. Okay, so everything, the Bible doesn't speak about every matter of life under the sun. Okay, it was written 2,000 years ago. But we believe that everything that it speaks to is absolutely true. Okay, and I don't have time to go into a defense of the Bible and, you know, discrepancies in the scripture, which are really due to textual variance. Okay, because you have the Bible written in, here, I'm about to go into a description, sorry. Um, the Bible's written in Hebrew and Greek. 
Okay, so, so we believe that in those original manuscripts, the Bible is perfect. Now, scribes have copied them down through the years. And we can expect that, you know, as a scribe was writing word after word after word, there might be a little mark that changed a vowel that, you know, might change a word here or there. But uh, 95 or more percent of the textual variants are simply spelling errors or something like that. So it's, there's nothing to be concerned about with the veracity of the Bible. And even if you say, okay, there are some of the variants that change a word, uh, I mean, none of the major doctrines are affected by any of those variants. Okay, so we could talk more about that another time, maybe another sermon, but we can trust in the reliability and trustworthiness of the scriptures as as we believe they are given by God. Now, what is the implication of this? If God has given us his revelation in the pages of scripture and then the person of Christ, which all the scriptures point to him, then what should we do with the Bible? We should pick the Bible up and read it, right? We live in a privileged place in human history. 600 years ago, they couldn't have, people weren't just walking around with Bibles everywhere, right? You had to go to the church and listen to, to someone try to, to read it or explain it. But now we have copies of God's word. We can, we can pick it up and soak it up. If you're like me, maybe the men can identify with this little picture, okay? In the summertime, I love a good grill out, okay? You know what I'm saying? Men, anybody? Beat your chest a little bit, man. You're feeling good about it, right? It's like, and, and ladies, man, I'm not saying ladies, you, you might be mean on the grill. I don't know, but I'm just saying it's typically, you know, uh, got the fire and the, the meat down. And so, man, there, to me, there is nothing better than a summer day throwing some meat down on the grill, except if that meat had been maybe in a bag or a pan overnight, marinating all night. You know what I'm saying? Anybody getting hungry? right? So that's what I'm talking about. See, I mean, I grew up, my mom made this Italian chicken. Okay, I'll give you the recipe. It's super simple. Um, this Italian chicken my dad would throw on the grill. Man, it was just so awesome. So if you're talking, you're talking chicken, you're talking pork chops, maybe a little stubs marinade. Uh-huh. You can get that at Stop and Shop after church. Um, or maybe some steak, throw down some marinated steak. See, what makes the meat so good? It's just soaking in the marinade, right? And this is the picture of meditation, of soaking up the Word of God, that we read it and we reread it again and again and again, and we let it soak in our heart to where the Word just becomes part of us. And it begins to influence everything in our lives. So if God has revealed Himself through His Spirit-inspired Word, this Word is perfect without error, then we should want to to soak it up, to read it, to study it. Now, if you need some encouragement to get in the Word, okay, if that's not enough for you, then let me let the Word speak for itself and give you some images of Scripture that we find in the Bible. Okay, so the Bible says of itself that the Word of God is a lamp and a light. Psalm 119, 105, a great verse that the children uh, often memorize. Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And each one of these images tell us something that is true of the Bible. So this picture gives us uh, 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 instruction on how the Bible counsels us. It guides us. It directs us. It shows us the path that we should live in life. And like I always say, if you don't believe it, just test it out and see if it's true. 
live according to the Bible and see how your life goes and choose not to live according to the Bible and see how it turns out. It's just as simple as that. God's word is a lamp and a light to guide us and counsel us. Number two, the word is like a mirror. Okay? James 1.22. Actually, flip to James if you want, or you can just listen. Uh, James is in the back of the Bible, uh, a few books from the end. James 1, starting in verse 22, it says this, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Okay, don't forget that. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who in looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Okay, so let me summarize that for you. What it's saying is the Bible is like a mirror. And when we hold the Bible up to the mirror of our lives, it will show us how we stand before God. And I'm not going to, you know, pick on anyone this morning, but I would assume that some of you, when you woke up this morning and you looked in the mirror, there were some things, I mean, you were beautiful people after all, right? So, I mean, you were probably thinking, hmm, look pretty good this morning, just like yesterday and the day before, okay? So, so that, that would probably, that was part of your response. But then on the other hand, you might have seen that, you know, you had a little hair sticking out. You got, you know, a little bed face on your face, like bed head and then bed face. Anybody ever heard of that? Uh, neither have I. I just made it up. But um, you, 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 get, you get the point, right? I mean, so there, <laughs> I just made that up, AP. What, what do you know? Um, there are some things that we need to change, right? Sometimes about our appearance. And this is what happens when we open God's book. It shows us what we have going on that looks like God and what we have going on that doesn't look like God and where we need to make some adjustments and changes in our lives. Number three, the word is like a fire and a hammer. Jeremiah 23 verse 29 says this. And so what is this referring to? It's the, the sanctifying process. We talked about sanctification last week, which just means that God is making us more like him. So a fire purifies pure metal, right? If you, if, you, if you burn gold and it separates the dross, right, from, from the pure metal. And that's what the word is to do to us. It's like a fire and like a hammer that chisels away that which does not look like God. So the word is constantly changing us. Number four, related to this, the word is like a sword. It penetrates our souls. It shows us where God wants us to, to change and to, to live our lives for him. And then finally, I love this. Jesus quoting Deuteronomy 8, verse 3 in Matthew 4, 4, he says to Satan when he's tempted in the wilderness, right? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So the, the word of God, it sustains us. It, it gives us life. So, so think about this, okay? Why would we not want to dive into this treasure? Why would we not, if, if spiritually speaking, just as we live by, by bread and water and food daily physically, God is saying, so spiritually daily, you are to live by the truth of God's word. Why would we not want to pick it up? And here's what I love about God, okay? Not because I'm special. It doesn't matter who's standing here. As long as whoever is standing here is 
explaining this book, then what is going on even right now is that God is holding up his mirror, right? God is throwing out some fire to change you. He is wielding his sword to cut away that which does not look like him. If we would receive it with humility, the word gives us life. This is what Moses said before the end of his life in Deuteronomy 32, verses 45 through 47. He says, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your life your very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land that you are going over to the Jordan to possess. So the content of meditation is the word of God. And this word, because it is from God, has the ability, the power to give us life. That's uh, like, we can just kind of, can we just kind of go home? Are you guys good? I can just kind of stop right here, cut the sermon way short. I mean, because that should be enough to motivate us to get into it. I love this stuff, right? I'm kind of, you guys can tell I'm a little excited about this today. All right, so that's what we, that's what we meditate on, the Word of God. Now, now, what do we do with the Word of God? Number two, we need to keep the command of meditation, okay? So, so the Word is the content of meditation, but we are to keep the command of meditation. And again, we see this in verse 8 of chapter 1 of Joshua. It says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. Okay, there's a command, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Another command. So this, this is what we do with the word. We keep the command to meditate. And the NIV, the New International Version, if you have it, is even more explicit. It says, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night. And so this is, this is not a suggestion, okay? Like this is what we do with God's commands, right? We read it in the Bible and we think, you know what? That sounds kind of nice, but not this week, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I'll try to get to that maybe next week or next month or after this job kind of slows down a little bit, you know? And so we, we take God's commands and we turn them into optional suggestions. But that's not very wise. If, if God has commanded us to do something and he knows what's best for us, then we should keep God's commands. And so... It is, it, I think it is impossible, okay? Preachers are known for hyperbole, right? But I don't think this is one, all right? I think it's, it is, is impossible to overestimate the value of consuming God's word. I just, don't think we can, I just don't think we can make too much of it. So Donald Whitney makes this point in his great book, The Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life, on our resource table downstairs. He says this, no spiritual discipline is more important than the intake of God's word. No spiritual discipline. These rhythms that we're trying to establish personally and corporately in Redemption Hill, he says, this is the one that you want to make sure you do not do without. And so let me give you just some ways. I'll give you five ways to consume the word, to, to intake the word of God, okay? Number one, these are really simple. Number one, read the word. Read it. Pick up your Bible in the morning and, and, and read through a chapter of the, of the Bible. Take one book like Joshua, 24 chapters, and for 24 days, read a chapter a day. Or if you want to pick up three in a day, you're going to read it in eight days. Now, I know if, if you're like me, when you see a, a major 
poem, a volume that is like, you know, a thousand pages or more, you're kind of intimidated by that, right? I mean, we all are to a degree. I mean, I'll never read that book. But did you know if you just read 15 minutes a day, you would read the Bible through in a year? It's not much, right? I mean, can we, get, can we find 15 minutes in a day? I'd say so. So, so we read the word, we open it up. I mean, we want to do this individually, but listen, if you're kind of stagnant in your Bible reading, maybe what would jumpstart you, and this is the same for prayer, is to get together with a friend, a roommate, a spouse, and read together. We love to promote what we, what we call Redemption Hill. We borrow from someone else. One-to-one Bible reading, okay? Just getting together with a friend. I read a paragraph. You read a paragraph. I read a paragraph. You read a paragraph. Then we stop and we discuss it. Hey, what is this saying? How does this apply to our lives? What are we going to do about what we read? It's very simple. Reading the Word of God. Hey, we want to put out a challenge, okay? to read the Bible every day for the next four weeks. Okay, that's 28 days. Who wants to take up this challenge? Just to, just to open your Bible for the next 28 days, whether it's a few verses and you're really, you know, meditating on them, or if you read several chapters, you know, switch it up if you want. You don't, you don't eat the same thing for breakfast every day, right? So, I mean, it's like you can, you can modify your approach. It's okay. But for the next 28 days to open up this book given to us by God and to read. So that's one way we consume the Bible. Number two, study. Okay? Jerry Bridges says reading gives breadth, but study gives depth. All right? Now, there is a reason why I can barely read my notes this morning. It's because my study Bible is weighing this music stand down. Okay? So check out this massive. This is what we call a study Bible. All right? I figure if I'm preaching on the word, I should get the biggest Bible in my house and bring it so that it might help me make the point, all right? But, but a study Bible, we, we recommend the ESV study Bible. Look at this. This is the text, and then it has all these notes that helps you understand, man, what is going on? What's being said? The introductions to each book help you understand how the book fits into the whole of the 66 books of the Bible. And so we want to not only read the Bible, but we want to study the Bible. And it's good to have helps like this, a study Bible that, that you can, you know, some parts that are maybe a little fuzzy, you don't understand as well, to read those notes. Then you're going to be so enamored and enthralled by what the word says that you're going to want to go get a commentary and a Bible dictionary. You're going to start building a library of books to help you understand this one book because it's this rich to us. So we read the word, we study the word, and we also hear the word. We listen to the word. It's exactly what you're doing right now. You're listening to the word. And we talk about coming to worship. And a lot of times in modern terminology, we think worship equals singing songs. And I'm all about singing songs. I love to sing songs. You see me on the front row, man, I'm, I'm, I'm loving it. Okay, thank you, Joel and, and Phil for leading us today. All right, so that is worship. But so is prayer. So is listening to the word of God. So if, if this is worship, then what does that do to our approach on Sundays? Maybe, maybe we go to bed a little earlier on Saturday night so that we can be fresh and attentive. Maybe we, we get up and we pray to God, God, teach me something today from your word that I might go live it out. Maybe we actually, because this is so important, maybe we don't just lay aside the sermon after the service ends, but maybe we talk about it at lunch or with a friend through the week. Hey, 
what is God doing in your life as it regards to the rhythm of the word? See that? So we read the word, we study the word, we hear the word, number four, we meditate on the word. We're going to talk more about that. And then I believe if we meditate well, it is a great mechanism to then memorize the word, number five. So then we hide the word in our heart, Psalm 119, verse 11, that we might not sin against God. We can put it positively. We hide the word in our heart. We know the word in our minds and in our hearts so that we can please God and keep his commands. So these are ways that we can consume the word of God and keep the command of meditation. Number three. We need to practice the manner of meditation. Now, Joshua 1.8 is a great text for helping us understand what meditation can look like, okay? So, how, what should this look like? Donald Madvig is a Hebrew scholar. He says this, this phrase, from your mouth, refers to the custom. You see, I did some study on this, all right? You see what I'm saying? Y'all with me? I hope so. Some of you laughing. You got it. All right. This phrase from your mouth refers to the custom of muttering while studying or reflecting. The Hebrew word translated meditate literally means mutter. When one continually mutters God's word to his, himself, he is constantly thinking about it. Okay, so I'm not saying, okay, we're not legalistic here and saying every time you're not meditating if you're not muttering it to yourself, okay? You can read the word silently again and again and again and you can still be meditating on it. But I would suggest because of the, the, the Hebrew intention here that it is good to read the word softly and kind of mutter it to yourself as you're reading through it because you, as you hear it audibly, it's going to help it stick into your mind and heart, okay? So I'm trying to work on the book of Galatians, so I might read it kind of to myself, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. To the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. One, one through five. So, and I'm not doing that to show off. I'm just, as an example, that's what it can look like. And when you read it again and again and again, it gets into your mind, it gets into your heart, and hopefully it gets into your life so that you actually live it out, right? So, so this is the manner of meditation. It involves constant, repetitive exposure to God's Word. So a good way to understand meditation is this. Do you ever worry about anything? I mean, does anyone like have some worries, some, some anxieties in your life? What happens when you're worried about something? You just can't get it off your mind, right? You're just thinking about it constantly. Just like you're trying to do something else and it just pops back into your mind. So, so meditation is, is, is kind of a similar concept. Except it's positive. We have the word in our mind constantly. We're constantly being exposed to the word. So this is the difference, by the way, between biblical meditation and Eastern meditation, okay? So if you go to like Buddhism and, and some of the practices of yoga, what's the, what's the principle there? You meditate in order to empty your mind, right? You're trying to go to this, this void, this nothingness, this, this place of, of kind of mindless, you know, peace. And, and so the, the biblical meditation is not emptying our mind. Biblical meditation is filling our mind with God's word. That's the manner of meditation. Now, how often should we do so? Number four, we need to observe the extent 
of meditation. And what does he say? He says, this book of the law should not depart from your mouth, but you should meditate on it day and night. The phrase day and night is a literary device called a mirrorism. And a mirrorism, it, it, is a, it expresses totality by referring to uh, contrasting uh, points of reference, okay? So day and night is saying day and night and everything in between, okay? So it's, it's saying basically you meditate on the word all the time. And you say, well, Tanner, I know, like, you're just objecting. How do we do this? We have to work, you know, 40 to 50 hours a week. And what does this look like? Well, it's an attitude, right? Just when Paul says, pray without ceasing. It's that we want to constantly experience communion and fellowship with God. And the same thing is true in the Word. We, that's why I think it's good, okay? Again, not to be legalistic, but I think it's good and wise to open your Bible in the morning so that you start your day with God. And try to take a phrase or a verse and let it soak into your mind. And then maybe you write it on a card, okay? Maybe you put it on a post-it note on your bathroom mirror or on your dashboard, okay? Don't read it and have a wreck, but that's just an idea, okay? Or, or maybe you get an app. There's an app called Fighter Versus. We'll put it in our newsletter this week. That, that is a way that you can just push the app, get verses to pop up, and, and it'll help you meditate and memorize the scriptures, so again, what we're after here is a lifestyle, not like a Sunday thing, not a few weeks thing. This is hopefully something that we put into practice all the time. And I've experienced the value of meditating on the word uh, in my life. Okay, so a quick testimony for me. I grew up in the church and it wasn't really until middle school, okay, we have a couple of middle schoolers here today, that I, I really began to understand the value of God's word. And it happened through starting to go to a student group in our church, which we've now started at Redemption Hill, and you pray for it that we can get it off the ground and go really well. Uh, but, but our youth leader asked a question at Tuesday night Bible study every week. He said, who read your Bible every day? And so because I'm kind of competitive, I wanted to make sure when he asked the question that I could hold up my hand, you know, look around, say, yeah, look at me, you know, I got my word every day this week. What's wrong with you, sinners? Um, but uh, anyway, that was when I was maybe young and immature. And, but, but, but what happened is, and I think this is what will happen in your life, once you read the word, you start to love the word because it's life, right? And so, so that was a good season in my life. And then, and then I started to memorize just a few verses through high school. But then I went on a mission trip to China, okay? We went to Hong Kong, China, and the missionary's name was Scott Smith. He looked just like Robin Williams, the actor, okay? It's kind of spooky, all right? And, and he was, as we were going around the city, and as he was teaching us in the morning from his devotionals, he didn't have to have his Bible because he would just quote it. We'd be driving in a bus by, you know, temples, and he would start quoting Psalm 115. These idols have eyes but cannot see, ears but cannot hear, mouths but cannot speak, and those who worship them become like them. And he was just quoting scripture again and again and again. So my buddy Rush and I noticed that, and we said, man, how does this guy know the Bible so well? We need to ask him about that. And he said when he was in college, he joined this, this group called the Navigators, okay? And they were challenged to read through the Bible every year, and memorize, you ready for this? One verse a day. One verse a day. We were just blown away by that. Like, can anyone memorize a verse every single day? It seems so impossible. Again, talking about standing on the edge of impossible. But, but Rush and I went back to, to Kentucky from Hong Kong, and we said, you know, we need to give this a shot. So the, from the end of my sophomore year 
through my senior year of college, okay, this is not to boast anything good of me as Jesus, right? But we found out that it is possible to memorize a verse a day or more than a verse a day. So by the time I graduated college, I had memorized about a thousand verses of the Bible. And then when I went to seminary, I said, you know what, maybe we should try to memorize books of the Bible. And, and, and we've, we've, we've been able to do that as well. So, so again, that's not to like Tanner's great. No, Tanner's not great. The point is that God's word is great. And if you put a little discipline into it, give your mornings to God, make sacrifices, prioritize this in your life, set some goals, have a strategy and accountability because I had my friend Rush who was asking me and I was asking him, if you put these things into your life, what you're going to find is you can meditate on the Bible and even memorize it and internalize it in your life. So what is it going to take, all right? You're not going to memorize a thousand verses in a, in a week or a month or a year probably. But even though it doesn't happen overnight, it can happen. And, it, and as we talked about last week, okay, I threw this slide up there because I loved it so much last week. What we have to have is dependent discipline, all right? There it is, bam, all right? Dependent discipline, constantly leaning on God, asking for his strength as we discipline ourselves day by day to get into the rhythm of the word. So we meditate on the word day and night for what purpose? Number five, we want to fulfill the purpose of meditation, which is to be careful to do all that is written in it. So listen, it doesn't matter, okay? And, and to my shame, all right, to my shame, there were times in college where I was memorizing Bible verses and not living them out at all. You can know the Bible with encyclopedic knowledge and it means absolutely nothing to God. God is not impressed with our knowledge if we don't put that knowledge into practice. So we want to know the word and be devoted to God in his word that we might live it out, that we might put it into practice so that James 1.22 is not true of us, that we're listening to the word and deceiving ourselves, but we're actually doing what it says. And this is probably a good point to highlight. The reason we're pursuing these rhythms of grace the reason we're trying to pick up our Bible daily and read it and, and have a prayer life, we'll talk about next week, and getting into the community of faith and serving and giving ourselves away, the reason we're trying to cultivate these disciplines and work out our salvation as God works in us is so that we can be devoted to God so that we can love God more. This is why last week's sermon was so important. We work out our salvation because it is God who works in us to will and to act. So God has to give us the desires, the affections for him. So please don't hear this sermon and say, you know what, man, I'm going to pick up my Bible and in my own strength, in my own reliance, I am going to, you know, read the Bible every day for 28 days. I'm going to memorize the meta memo verse every week for the next four weeks. And I'm going to try to memorize a thousand verses in a few years. I mean, that's just not, that's not going to work, number one. And number two, it's not going to be super pleasing to God. We read the word, we pray, we worship, we come on Sundays because we love God and we want to love him more. And so this is why we seek to know God 
through his word. Now, when we do all of this, okay, when we understand the content of meditation, we keep the command of meditation, we uh, understand the manner of meditation and, and the extent and the purpose, then number six, we get to enjoy the fruit of meditation. What does the end of the verse say? It says, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. So the meditating Christian, Psalm 1, 1 through 3, such an awesome, blessed is the man, listen to this, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. What is he like? Verse 3, he's like a tree that's planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, and whatever he does prospers. So when we meditate on the word and we seek to put the word into practice, then we experience the blessing of God and the fruitfulness that comes from the Holy Spirit being living and active in us. So why do we meditate? It's so that we can live a fruitful life that brings God glory and shows how awesome he is. So let me walk you through, okay, before we wrap up. Let me walk you through a sanctified progression of exposure to God's word, okay? I made this up about six years ago. Actually, I thought of it as I was praying, walk around our neighborhood at seminary. And then I tweaked it this morning, all right, just before I came to church, right? You should say reading, now it says exposure. How do you like that? All right, so, so number one, we want to expose ourselves. Expose yourself to the word, so we do that by, by reading it, by hearing it, by studying it, by meditating on it, by seeking to memorize it, okay? So we expose ourselves to the Word, but we don't stop there, okay? Because some people stop there, right? You just hear a sermon and that's it. We then allow the Word to expose us. Allow the Word to expose you. Remember, it's like a mirror. It's showing you where you measure up and where you don't measure up. And so allow the Word to expose what's going on in your life that you might change and become more like God to his glory. But then sometimes we stop there, right? So, so it's one thing to read it. It's another thing to obey it. But that's not where God wants us to stop. God wants us to read the word. He wants us to obey the word. And then he wants us to spread the word. So then the third step is that others will be exposed to the word through you. So then because you're displaying the gospel with your life and you're declaring the gospel with this word that is in your heart, now other people can come to know this God that you worship. It's a beautiful thing. This is why we're here. The Great Commission, make disciples, go. Make disciples of all nations. So as David Platt asked the great question, does the word of God stop with you or does the word of God spread through you? I hope that as you're exposed to the word and the word exposes you, that others would be exposed to the word in your life. To wrap up, let me ask you a question that Donald Whitney in his book asks. He says, if your growth in godliness were measured by the quality of your Bible intake, what would be the result? 
What would be the result? Would you look, forgive the graphic picture, would, would you look spiritually unhealthy? Or would you be healthy and full of life and strength because you're taking in the word of God so consistently. Why do we do this? Let me go back to what we said last week. The reason we cultivate rhythms of grace in our life is so that the gospel can be renewed within us and we can be transformed so that when that happens again and again and again, our church can be transformed, which can then lead to our city being transformed. Form. This is what Keller says. I'll end with this quote. Gospel renewal or revival is an intensification of the normal operations of the spirit like conviction of sin, regeneration, sanctification, assurance of grace through what? The ordinary means of grace. If you want God to do a great work in your life, there's not some magic formula, okay? You don't have to have lightning bolts from heaven show up in your bedroom to, to, you know, set you on fire for God. All you need to do is place yourself under the rivers of God's grace through the disciplines and rhythms of grace. We read the word, we commune with God through prayer, we worship him, and we do all of these things that he might be glorified in us. Let's pray. God, what a shame it would be to hear from your word and not do something about it. We want to be prosperous. We want to be successful. Not so that we can be made much of, not so that we can be famous or, or have, you know, a ton of money or anything like that, but we want to obey your word so that you might be honored with our lives. And so God, I pray that you would do something radical in each one of us, that you would do something radical in our church, that when people think about Redemption Hill Church, they don't think about how great we are, but they think about how great you are. That they would say, man, that is a church that really loves God. That is a church that loves his word and lives by his word. And so God, we pray that you would work this renewal in us and that as a result, you would be worshiped and glorified, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.